Russell with some questions that we have, some bigger questions uh, that maybe the Bible doesn't specifically address or that we just need clarity on. Lord, I pray that you would speak. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. A lot of times we need tweaks from these questions, I think, to help us. Some tension in our lives, God. Some of these questions represent a story, Lord, of, of uh, stuff that, that has been difficult for us in the past. And so, Lord, we pray that, um, Lord, that you would just be really present, that you would speak, um, and that you would just bring clarity as you always do. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so over the next three weeks, we're doing this series called Big Questions. And if you haven't sent in any questions, there's questions, there's still time. I can't guarantee that we will get to every one of them, but this is the first time we've done a series like this, and I'm pretty excited about it. Like, I'm pretty excited that you guys get to set the agenda for the day, and just to hear, like, okay, what are the thoughts of people? What are, where, where are you know, what are the things that, that we wrestle with? And you get to do so through text, so you have the cloak of secrecy um, with you. You can just shoot a text. Um, we won't be naming any names up here, so... Um, so I hope this is fun. I hope it's informative. And if, like I said, if I don't, if, if, if we get into a question and, and you're not satisfied, um, let's talk more, right? I'm not assuming that anything I answer is going to completely satisfy this question that you've had for years. And so this is just what I want to tell you before we get into, into these questions okay, over the next three weeks is that the authority that we will answer these questions with is God's Word. Like, that's all I got. That's all we got is the Word of, of God and making sense of it. Um, I wanted to share this verse from John 8. This is Jesus speaking. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's why this is important. That's why we go to the Word, because Jesus said that if we live, abide, live in His Word, then we're truly His disciples. We'll know the truth, and the truth sets us free. And so that's why it's so important that not just today, but every day that we wrestle with our questions, that we study God's Word, that we press in deeper. I feel like our questions can either pull us further from God or draw us closer to God as we seek answers for all of this. And so my prayer is that through this, um, you know, we're going to be talking about some detail stuff, right? This is the series where instead of looking at the forest for the trees, we start picking up pine cones and just like looking at pine cones, you know, we just, we're going to be doing some of that. So, but I hope what it does is that it actually inspires you to sit down and meditate on God's word more, to, to research, to study, to, to, to not slouch on engaging in God's word because that's where the truth is and that's the truth that will set you free. I also just want to put this out. Um, Paul, tells second, uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's a supporting verse for why we look at Scripture, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to us for teaching, for everything we need to grow is in God's Word. So those are, we're, we're going to look at God's Word, and then the second thing I promise you is I'm not going to pretend I know everything, okay? I, I don't know everything. Um, I, I, I just want to tell this short story real quick, but I took an 
Old Testament class one time, you know, and this man was paid to teach me the Old Testament. And um, we were doing the book of Jonah, and the last line of the book of Jonah is really weird. I just wanted to share this with you. So God is telling Jonah, this is how the book ends. He says, uh, he says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I was like, what's up with the cows in this verse? Why are there cows in this verse? And he looked at me, and he said, I don't know. I was like, you're paid to know. You're supposed to know why cows are in there. But I loved his honesty. You know, he's like, I, I don't know why people say God put cows at the end of that verse. But anyways, just saying sometimes I might not have a great answer. That's all I'm saying. So, okay, I'm going to stop, and we're going to dive in. And here's our first question that we're going to wrestle with today. I'm going to go ahead and put on the screen. All right, first question is, Head coverings for women? Question mark. Big families? Question mark. So this person cheated and put two questions in one, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about them both. One question mark per question, really. Um, but I want to look. We'll, we'll we'll look at big families first. We'll look at big families first. Um, so there are several traditions within Christianity that kind of emphasize big families, and um, one of those would be like traditional Catholicism would emphasize having a bigger family. Um, there's other religions that emphasize bigger families, like Mormonism uh, would emphasize having bigger families. So um, I'm assuming that this question is really two parts. It's um, So are we supposed to have big families if we're Christians? And then the other question that's up is, is it okay for Christians to use birth control? Like I'm guessing that those are the two, the, the two parts to this question. And so there's, there's kind of two things. Um, two, two, two parts to this, two sides. Um, and I'll say this, is that in Scripture, children are a blessing. Like, Scripture teaches us that kids are a blessing. You know God's first commandment to Adam and Eve was to what? Be fruitful and multiply. You can't do that without having kids, right? So that's, that's something that God set up in the beginning. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And, and in order to do that, you have to have kids. Um, and then I wanted to share, this is what Solomon said in Psalms 127. He said, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the, hands of a, in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Quiver is what you shoot your arrows into. So clearly he's saying that kids are a blessing. You know, kids are a blessing to us. It, this word, uh, heritage, it's like an inheritance. It's something that God entrusts with us. God entrusts us with kids. Um, and so he's entrusted you with your kids. He's given you kids to love and to steward so that they will be a blessing. And I know as a father of three great kids, they are a blessing. And uh, they all have different personalities and different strengths. And uh, they bless me, and I want to be a blessing to them. So if you're if you're married and you can have kids, I highly endorse having kids. Um, but God also highly endorses having kids. Um, I know there are some people today who are afraid to have kids because it's like this release of freedom, and that's true. Okay, that's true. But it's but it's good. Nothing um, n nothing worthwhile is easy, you know. And it's the same with kids. Like we have kids, we invest in our kids. And I also read a report today that, or not today, but. Earlier this 
Whoops. Viral right now. Uh, we made a choice not to have four. Three was enough for us, man. We love it. Um, but we exercise what we feel is our freedom in Christ to stop at three. And if somehow God gives us a fourth child, that will be a blessing. Um, but we, we made the choice because for us, as we considered it, it's about, you know, we're limited. You know, we have limited capacity. We're ministry people. Our life is people. We wanted to have, like, the, the relational space and, and, and the financial space to make sure that we were present for all our kids, that we were there for them. Um, we came, both came from homes with smaller families, so we're used to that kind of tight connection. And so the question would be, does God allow that? I can say this. There's nowhere in Scripture that forbids birth control. There's nowhere in Scripture that dictates the amount of kids that you have to have. There is one passage in Genesis 38 where God punishes this guy, Onan, for not fulfilling this uh, law or command to have a, a, a kid in place of his brother. But that was about that issue, a family issue. It wasn't about birth control. Um, Matt Kerman wrote this on the subject. He said, Just because something is a gift from the Lord does not mean that it is wrong to be a steward of when and whether you will come into possession of it. It is wrong to reason that since children are good and a gift from the Lord, then we should pursue as much children as possible. Does that make sense? It's kind of like the logic there. It's kind of like marriage. Like, marriage is good, but we're actually not all called to be married. Like, Paul makes a case like, hey, if, if you want to stay single and committed to the Lord and you can avoid sexual temptation, do it. Do it. That's actually a good thing. And so it's this, you know, it's, it's similar with kids. And I just want to like end this question with one other verse to consider. So we know kids are a blessing. And then here is the other side of it. Here's like the warning label on kids. This is 1 Timothy 5, 8. There's a warning label. But it says this. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yikes, right? Like, that's a pretty severe warning. God wants us to be able to take care of our families and our kids. And so that we should think about that as we um, prepare to have kids or, or think about that. That should factor in. It shouldn't scare us away, but we should be thinking about that because it's our duty, our responsibility to care for our kids. And I know for us, as we considered that, it wasn't just about the finances. It was about the relational side of it. Like, I want to be there for all of my kids. And so ultimately, if you're in that season where you're thinking about that, like, ask God. You know, let God give you peace on that. Okay, so we got one out of the way. Check. All right, there we go. Um, and obviously, like I said, if this is a question like, hey, I still, you know, I want to follow up on that, please do. Um, but here's the next part of that question. Head coverings for women. And for some of us, we're like, what are you talking about? Like, head covering? Like, give me some context for that. Where is this question coming from? Because obviously, we do not make women wear head coverings in this gathering. We don't even require masks anymore, which is pretty cool. Um, but there, there's no churches in our stream that I know of that require head coverings for women. So where is this question coming from? And it's coming from a passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, which Paul instructs the women in Corinth 
to wear head coverings. And so what I want to do is I want to read this passage, okay, and then I want to just talk about it. We're going to dive in, like, what is he talking about? So here we go. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We'll get back to that. Uh, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is as the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, there it is, all right? Uh, First, I want to say there's not a person in this room who, after reading this passage, says, yeah, that makes sense. Like, totally, I get that. I know what you're talking about. We don't practice this today. We don't. We don't practice this today. There's really no Christian tradition that I can think of that, that, like, in our country that practices this today, but Paul taught it, so what do we do with it? What do we do with something like this? Well, what we need to realize is one thing, is that the Bible was written for our instruction, but it was also written to a specific people at a specific time, at a specific place, culture, right? So it was written for us, but it wasn't written directly to us. Paul's directly addressing the Corinthian church in this situation, and so for us to make sense of it, we actually have to figure out, well, what is he talking about? Because this is just an aside in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the part that, that, like, the rest of it, like, we get, but this is the part that's like, why is this in here? What's going on? And so what we need to know is, like, what's happening in the church at that time? What's happening in the city? What's happening in that place? What's the significance of wearing a head covering in Corinth in the first century? So let's talk about Corinth. Uh, Corinth is, in the first century, kind of known as the most modern city in the Roman Empire, and it's specifically known for promiscuity. Like, that's what it's known for. Um, It had temples with paid temple prostitutes, and it was common for men to stop by there on their way home from work. Like, promiscuity was huge in this culture. And so um, the idea of having a monogamous marriage would have been countercultural at this time and place. And so in the first century Roman Empire, a head covering was symbolic of marriage for a woman. To wear a head covering meant that you were taken, that you were married. Um, If you weren't wearing one, it meant that you were available. And so that's not our symbol today, right? We wear wedding rings, right? We don't wear the head coverings. And so Paul is responding to this specific situation in Corinth um, where women in, in their freedom in Christ are thinking, well, now I can just take this thing off. Like, let's do away with conventions, and, and this doesn't matter anymore. But Paul is saying, hey, consider others. Like, uh, it's actually important that you signify that you're married. Like, you could actually make other men stumble by being immodest. So it's really a... a, a It's really about modesty, and it's really about honoring your marriage. And so that's the the easy part of this verse. That's the easy part. 
Uh, the bigger deal is headship. Dare we go there, church? I don't know. If you walk out, I'll catch you later. Um, no, this is the bigger deal. This is probably the bigger thing we struggle with. Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And some of you, when you read that, are like, full stop. What? What are you talking about? Well, as you read the New Testament, you see that there is, there is this chain of responsibility, chain of authority, that we find here and in other parts of the New Testament. And when we read this with our eyes, we might immediately think like patriarchy. Uh, we might think at first glance that this means that women are less than men uh, or play a lesser role. So we need to look at, okay, what does this mean in Scripture? And the first thing I want to tell you is that authority, God does authority way different than we do. All right? When we talk about authority, we think of privilege. Um, we, we think of who's in control. We think hierarchy. God's not thinking that way. When God talks about authority, he's talking about responsibility. He's talking about love. And he is talking about interdependence. Marriage is not designed to be a hierarchy. We're actually meant to fit together like a molecule. Right? If you took out the individual elements of a molecule, that would no longer be whatever that substance is, right? Like, it would not be that. But we were made to be interdependent. And he goes on to say that in verse 11. He says, uh, Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as man, woman was made from man, so man is are from God. So there is interdependence. Um, there's also this interdependence because he says that um, God is the head of Christ, meaning the Father is the head of the Son. Now Jesus was crucified for claiming that he was equal with God. There is equality between God the Son and God the Father. But there is in, in, uh, there's interdependence and order in Scripture. That doesn't mean that there's one is more valuable or more important. There is equal value and equal importance. One thing we can do is we can look to what Paul taught on marriage in Ephesians 5, because Paul gives specific directions to wives and specific directions to husbands. When Paul taught on marriage in Ephesians 5, he tells wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And that's another full stop verse, like, what do you mean, submit? The idea of submitting, it doesn't mean like a blind following, but what it means is that you would respect and honor your husband like you would Christ himself. Like you would Christ. That you would live for his good, and this is not a revolutionary teaching within our faith. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus said, when you love the least of these, you're actually loving me. You're actually loving me. So really, we should treat everyone like the way we treat Christ, but what if God knew that that was going to be hardest in your marriage, right? What if God knew that that was going to be hardest uh, in your marriage? And wives, you know your husband's weaknesses, right? You do. We, let's list them out, okay? Right here. Um, you know that your husband is not Jesus, okay? You know that, but God is saying that you bring glory to him when you choose to honor, show honor anyways. And there are always 
you know, there's always um, bounds to that. There's always bounds to that. But the basic truth is that you bring glory to God when you choose to show honor to your husband. On the flip side, Paul gives husbands this task. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And giving himself up for her is a very, very small way to say what God did for the church. Because was there anything that Jesus withheld from the church? No. Jesus gave every minute of his life. He, he was humiliated for the church. He was mocked in front of 600 Roman soldiers. He suffered everything imaginable. He gave every drop of blood. And Paul is telling us as husbands, here's your bar. All right, here's your bar. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I kind of thought about that this weekend, and, and I was just thinking, like, man, that is a high bar, and that is a high calling. And there's so many times where I let my own selfishness um, pull me away from that. But knowing that this is the bar, knowing that this is the bar, I can, <laughs> I can never be an advocate for a jerky husband. I can never advocate for a husband who's a jerk. Like, if, you're, if you aren't loving your wife in a Christ-like way, that's what you need to do first. That's what you need to fix first before you get to anything else. That is the key relationship that God wants you to fix. Because in 1 Peter, it says that when we don't treat our wives in a loving way, it actually hinders our prayers. God won't listen to us because we haven't taken care of of that vital relationship. And I know that the only way we can hope to reach that bar is when we actually have the Spirit of God living in us. I can't reach that bar on my own. Like, I need to make sure that I'm walking in step with the Spirit, that I'm growing in Christ in order to get there. And I just want to say this as an aside. Um, this particular passage, it doesn't have anything to do with women leading in the church. So, Throughout scripture, we see that God has never been afraid to let women lead in different ways. We know that in his many letters, Paul writes about female leaders in, this, in these churches like Chloe, Priscilla, Junia, Lydia. We know that Jesus was willing to engage and disciple women when it was, um, it was looked down on. It was taboo in culture to do that. And so I just want to say, you know, this, this stuff can get confusing and maybe dicey. But I just want to say that we want to be a church that disciples women and empowers women to lead in the ways that God is calling them to lead. All right. There we go. Many, okay. Check, I hope. I don't know. You might want to talk to me on that one. All right, I know I just have a few minutes, and this question is not going to, um, this next question is going to be uh, one that I might not be able to get through, but we'll see what we can do. This is the next question is everything happens for a reason biblical? It's a good question, right? Is everything happens for a reason biblical? I was thinking about where we hear that phrase a lot. And unfortunately, for suffering. Like when people just kind of uh, dismiss or diminish someone's suffering and say, well, everything happens for a reason. Like that's what came to my mind when I heard this phrase. And this should not be a phrase that we use 
when someone else is suffering. This is, should not be a phrase that we used in the face of sickness, in the face of disease, in the face of death, in the face of injustice, because it's not actually a biblical phrase. It's not actually a biblical phrase. Because when we use this phrase in the face of suffering, what it does is it challenges the goodness of God, right? We just sang about the goodness of God. It challenges the good of God. It, it makes people think, well, does that mean God is actually good? Like, if he's doing this to me. If we learn anything from the book of Job, it means that our calling is first to suffer with people and not try to make sense of suffering. That we actually need to leave that in God's hands. The book of Job is one of the most frustrating books of the Bible because for 30 chapters, it's Job's friends trying to explain why he's suffering. And at the end, God shows up and corrects everyone, but especially the friends who are trying to make sense of it. Like, our calling is to suffer with. But the, the issue that we have with this question is God's sovereignty. Like, we know, we say, we sing, God is in control. And that what that means is that nothing that happens escapes God's notice or escapes his permission. And that is what we have a hard time with, right? That's what we have a hard time with. And what scripture shows us is God has given humanity a lot of permission. A lot of permission. God has allowed us to sin. God has allowed humans all over the world to do terrible things. God's allowed disease. And so does that mean that he's not good? But here's the, the flip, is that the Bible actually tells us that we are the problem, not God. That we are the problem with the world, not God. That God did not make robots when he made humanity, but he made creatures with the capability to love. And in order to love, we had to make choices, and we choose to love ourselves rather than God. And because of that, we live in this world that's bearing the consequences of sin. And so this phrase, everything happens for a reason, isn't biblical. But the main verse that Christians would go to um, that's similar is Romans 8.28, which says, God works all things together for good, right? That's the verse that we would go to. But we say that, but we should understand the, the passage that it comes from. And I don't have time to read through the entire passage, but I, I wanted to read Romans 8, 18 through 28. Um, but Paul says, Paul says that for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. And I'll stop there, but this is what it's saying is that this side of eternity, there is suffering. We will never have heaven on earth. It will never happen. But what we see is that, that yes, God has frustrated us, frustrated our plans, frustrated our world. But why? Because he's mean? Because he's angry? No, this is what it says. 
in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's to wake us up. It's to realize that our way is not the best way. That's why God has given us permission. That's why God has not made you to be a robot. And so that we would realize that we need him and that we would be set free from the bondage to decay, the chains of death, that we would be set free and that we would live one day in freedom and glory. God's goal in all of this is to set us free. And I can't make sense of every situation. I can't make, make sense of, of everything that happens. But my hope is that there is suffering in this world. There is groaning. But one day, God will lead us into freedom and glory. And he doesn't just do that. He actually helps us in the present. I want to go down a few verses. This says this. It says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And here comes the verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So God is not directing everything. Uh, it says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, works everything together. But it's more like to our, like a music example, our dissonance, our... Our cacophony, our ugly music, God is bringing harmony to it, right? God is going to harmonize it. God is, um, God is going to weave our story into a beautiful story. And we don't—it uh, says that the, the world is, is groaning like the pains of childbirth. We are awaiting the moment when God will make everything new, when God will bring us into complete freedom— um, as we know, the picture at the end is in Revelation 21, where it says that God will wipe every tear from our eyes, and pain will be no more, and death will be no more, and the dwelling place of God will be with man. And so it talks a lot about hope. This passage talks a lot about hope. That's the point. Hold on to your hope. You will have suffering on this side, but hold on to your hope, because God is going to work all things together. And one day he will make everything new. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. God, I thank you that, um, Lord, you give us permission to wrestle with these big questions, God. Lord, I, I thank you that you um, walk with us in our suffering in the valley. You're the God of the valley and the God of the mountain, as we sang earlier. And so, Lord, I just want to praise you, Father. Lord, I want to make much of you because you are our hope. And I pray, God, that as we've had, as we talked about, a, a tough year, God, I pray that more and more you would be our hope. Lord, you would be the one guiding us, leading us, and hold the hope of heaven and God, out for us to see. And not just that, God, I pray for freedom now. 
Lord, I pray for the freedom for the things that, that do hold us captive, that do have us changed, chained, God. I pray for freedom. And Lord, I thank you for all that you're doing in, in each and every person here. Holy Spirit, continue your work. In Jesus' name, amen.